regular Data Nuts listener, you know that the show is one big topic split into three segments, typically. Well, today, we're going to do three little topics, one in each of the segments. Those topics are AWS Outposts, NVMe over Fabrics, and Parallel NFS. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, your host today. You will hear from Datanauts co-host Chris Wall in segment three as I interview him about why he's got such a strong opinion about parallel NFS. In our first segment today, we've got Ned Bellavans. We're going to talk a bit about AWS Outpost. Ned, in a sentence or two, just introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. So I'm Ned Bellavance. I'm a cloud consultant in the IT world. I'm a blogger. Uh, you can find me at nedinthecloud.com or on Twitter, Ned1313. Perfect. Okay. Now, nedinthecloud.com is where I actually found this topic. We were recording this just after AWS reInvent, which had eight bazillion announcements, one of which was AWS outposts and you blogged about AWS outposts and as your stack, which prompted me to ping you and go, Hey, we should talk about this a little bit more. <laughs> so Ned, in a nutshell, set this up for people. What is AWS outposts? Well, it's sort of the idea of having AWS in your data center by buying hardware from AWS that they ship and you install in your data center and it runs some version of AWS within that box, however many boxes it's going to be. Uh, they said that it can start as small as one node and expand up to a whole rack or maybe even multiple racks. Uh, details have been a little bit light on that part of it. Yeah. Okay. And there's, so it's, we'll analyze this in a little bit, but there's two offerings here, two flavors of this AWS outpost being offered. Can you explain what those two flavors are? Sure. Yeah. So the first one that they talked about, and they made the announcement with Pat Gelsinger on the stage from VMware. Um, so the first flavor of it is running the VMware on AWS code. So that fully managed VMware, but it would be running in your data center. But it's the, it's the same deployment methodology and the same bits that they're using to do the VMware on AWS today. Then the second flavor is AWS's special sauce. And it's going to, out of the box, offer... Elastic block storage, the EC2 instances, and VPCs to wrap around all of that. Okay. So, right. I remember this Pat Gelsinger being on stage. There was a lot of uh, virtual hugging and backslapping and so on, as you mentioned <laughs> yeah. in your blog post. But but I got to say, the, the second thing that you described there, running more or less native AWS on these boxes, seems like the natural thing that I'd want to do and why this would be interesting. Uh, I would say, okay, if I can run AWS in my data center, and that is more or less like what I'm doing in the public cloud, I can see certain advantages for that. The second play doesn't immediately make sense to me because, in other words, the Pat Gelsinger flavor, the VMware flavor on... AWS Outpost, because wouldn't I just run VMware natively on my own infrastructure? I'm not really understanding what VMware on AWS Outposts gives me. And I think you mentioned in your blog post that you didn't feel like this was a great idea. So so talk me through that. Do you see a use case for this at all? Who Who is VMware and AWS trying to appeal to with this offering? And, and then your thoughts on whether or not it's a good idea. Yeah, it seems really strange to me. Um, the VMware on AWS, the main selling point on that was I'm running VMware on-prem today. I don't want to change my management pane. I don't want to have my admins learn a new 
skill set. I just want them to be able to consume VMware now in the cloud in a fully managed way. Oh, look, I've got VMware on AWS. That's perfect. Snaps in. But the presumption of that solution is that you already are running VMware and understand VMware. So the idea of now buying hardware to have fully managed VMware in your data center, it's kind of like, wait, no, what? But I already have VMware. Why would I do this? And I don't have a good answer for that. Well, flipping back to the original offering, forgetting AWS Outpost for a moment, but VMware on AWS, in my mind, was all about that operational consistency, yes, but then also tight integration with some of the AWS services that are up there in their public cloud offering. That makes leveraging those services a, a bit easier. And to me, that was the attraction of running VMware on AWS in the cloud. Is that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it was certainly something they started to push, the ability to use something like elastic block storage to expand your storage beyond that VMware cluster or use some of the native load balancing capabilities and, and, and items like that. From AWS's perspective, I think that was their on-ramp to get people into their services and out of VMware. And VMware is just trying to find a way that they fit into the new cloud landscape. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know, because then if we flip it back around again to the VMware and AWS Outpost offering, Outpost is only offering a few core services right now, uh, EC2, EBS, uh, VPCs. That implies to me, if I'm running VMware on AWS Outpost in my own data center, I don't have that integration that might have been attractive to me, or I've only got a few of them, I guess. Right. I mean, there's a whole bunch of hyper-converged solutions already out there that are almost fully managed VMware. So if you're looking for just something that you can buy and drop in your data center and run without thinking too hard about it, I would probably go with one of those hyper-converged offerings. They're a little more mature. They're a little more robust, and, and I trust them. If I was looking at the other option, though, being able to run AWS in my data center, that's a really interesting proposition. And that's where I would focus my like mental energy on on considering. Because they're managing that offering for you, aren't they? Yeah, so they're managing the hardware and the software for it, which is going to be interesting for Amazon because before they've had full control over everything in their solution. So they control the data centers, they control the hardware and the software, they control the pace at which it's updated and revised. And all the customer integrations are kind of outside of that bubble but once they move into your data center, they're now kind of in your bubble. And so they have to deal with the messiness that is a customer's data center. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, the messiness in a customer's data center, Ned. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about at all. I'm, I'm in denial. Well, I could be talking about the physical messiness. Like when they ship you the hardware, they're presuming that you have the correct power, that you have the correct rack space and ventilation, uh, that you have the right networking already in place. And those are some pretty big assumptions uh, based off of my experience of going into data centers and trying to install hardware. Oh, yeah, for sure. Even in data centers where I've been the one in charge or primarily responsible for what's going in and out of racks, uh, thinking through whether or not a, what power strips have I got in there? How many? Oh, I have the rack space available, but because it's such a mess in this cabinet, I'm not actually going to be able to rack this piece of equipment unless I take three other things out first. Oh, crap. You know, that, 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 that harsh reality of managing cabinets and, uh, and racks and so on. Right. Well, that, that actually is another good point because AWS hasn't really announced what the form factors or requirements are for the Outpost offerings. Do we, do we even really know any of that stuff yet? No, and they haven't really 
divulge too much information, probably because they're still figuring it out. Right now, what they rolled out and showed was their own rack with their own hardware in it. But most customers are probably going to want to put that gear in their racks, in whatever special racks they use in their data center. So AWS is going to have to deal with that as well. Okay, uh, moving on to another thing that you mentioned in your blog post. I kind of caught this in passing. It was just a sentence. Uh, I don't want to make too much of it. But you you said <laughs> something to the effect that the API on Outpost is going to be different than the public cloud AWS API, which raised a flag for me immediately because one of the things I would think is the big attraction is that the API would be uh, effectively identical. So that if I'm a developer calling on cloud resources, I would anticipate that my calls to public cloud and then to AWS Outpost would be the same because operationally that's what I would want. So are are they different? In what ways are they different? Well, so just to clarify my my statement a little bit, what I meant was the version of the API is going to be different on Outposts uh, based on my experience with Azure Stack. So Azure Stack is a very similar offering from Microsoft, and the APIs that run within Azure Stack are always a little bit behind the versions of APIs running in Azure proper. And that's just because they have to go through a whole additional round of testing and validation to make sure the APIs will work on this smaller form factor in this customer's environment and on all of the OEM hardware versions that are out there. Um, So it just naturally follows that the public cloud version of Azure has newer versions available faster. And I think that AWS is going to be dealing with the same issue that customers are not necessarily going to want to upgrade as quickly and consistently as the public AWS cloud wants to. And so the revisions of the API are always going to be one or two behind what's available in the public cloud. Okay. So that that's your suspicion that they'll be eventually consistent. Yeah, and they're going to have to deal with that. How do we uh, allow you to use the CLI tools and PowerShell tools and the REST calls to make sure you're using a consistent version of the API between the two clouds? Mm, okay, so we don't know that for sure. That's just, but that is. Well, you made a comment there that Azure Stack is behind in in part because you're running this on a variety of different hardware. Microsoft isn't insisting or isn't shipping you an integrated box. Isn't the Outpost offering a little differently where they're shipping you kind of like Apple does, a tightly coupled hardware and software model? Yeah, right now they're saying that the hardware is Amazon's hardware, so they're not necessarily contracting with a bunch of different OEMs to produce the hardware. So they do sort of own the entire stack. So that should make testing and validation a little bit easier. But you still have to deal with when the customer is available to do the rolling upgrades of the system, because they have to figure out when can I take a maintenance window if there's any downtime required. You know, I have change management in place that I have to follow. So I can't just, I should say, AWS can't just randomly upgrade the code on your outpost box or else customers aren't going to agree to put it in their data center. They need to have control over when that upgrade happens. Hmm. Got it. Well, we brought up Azure Stack. So how does Outpost in your mind compare with Azure Stack? Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned one of them is the fact that Azure Stack is available on various OEMs, which means that there's a lot more testing and uh, validation that has to happen because of all the different hardware stacks. So that's one big difference between the two. Another difference is Outposts, they're saying you can start with a single node. The minimum for Azure Stack in production is four nodes. So that's another big difference. But I think for me, the, the killer app 
for outposts, if there is going to be one, is the fact that I can go to the AWS console eventually and order outposts directly through the console. I don't have to go through a VAR. I don't have to go through an OEM. I can just click a button and they'll ship it to me the same way that they ship, you know, Snowball today. Do we have a sense of the pricing if I'm running this in my data center and I'm paying for all the the power and so on to connect it up and, you know, the network consumption, et cetera, do do we know how they're going to charge us to, to consume an outpost node? They've mentioned nothing about pricing. My guess is that it's going to be similar to the way that Azure Stack was priced. So Azure Stack, because you're supplying the power and the compute and the hands, it's a greatly discounted charge from what the charge would be if you were running that same workload in Azure. Um, And they just have consumption-based pricing for the licensing. Mm. Uh, mm, 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 mm. Uh, yeah, this this will be this will be interesting if they if they do that because as you pointed out in your blog post, one node of AWS Outposts, just because of how much you can cram into a pretty small form factor these days, it could actually be quite a powerful offering. Yeah, and I'd assume you know for production you're going to want at least two, probably three nodes for redundancy and resiliency. But it it, it sounds like they've got an idea of how they want to scale the system. Uh, the real question is how big can it scale out out of the gate? And um, I mean, Azure Stack took like three years to go from an announcement to a re- actual product that you could order. I'm curious to see how long it's going to take Outposts to go from this announcement to when it's actually available as a GA product. Is Outposts and Azure Stack killer? Is that even fair to make that comparison? I think it's certainly a competitor. And just like in the public sphere, we've got Azure and AWS are the the two big public cloud giants. Obviously, AWS is bigger, but those are basically the big two and everybody else kind of falls to the wayside a little bit. I think we're going to have a similar situation in the data center where hybrid cloud is going to push down from the public cloud into the data centers. And that's going to be Azure Stack and Outposts. Microsoft managed to get there first, but that doesn't guarantee victory since AWS has the larger mind share in the public cloud. Well, I, one of the things I love about these announcements, Azure Stack, uh, when it came out a, a while ago and now uh, Outposts, is uh, for so long, the Clouderati were telling us that everything is moving up to the public cloud. It's game <laughs> over. It's all done for your local stuff. That's just an on-ramp to get to the cloud. And yet it's not It's not as simple as that. It, uh, it, it really isn't. A hybrid cloud seems to be the, the infrastructure style that's growing more than anything else. Yeah, and I think there's some specific use cases that AWS and Azure Stack are are, are trying to address with their offerings. Uh, One is data locality, whether it's there's a regulation that the data has to reside in a particular location or the workload that's consuming or generating the data needs to be really close to the endpoint. So why not put that endpoint in your data center? Another one is a disconnected type scenario where You don't have reliable connection to the internet, but you want to run a public cloud style offering wherever that is, whether it's, you know, somewhere in the middle of the Sahara or on a cruise ship or whatever the reason is, you don't have good connectivity. It sounds like right now Outpost is a connected only offering, but I'm sure they'll have a disconnected solution at some point. Public cloud was supposed to kill the data center. Ha! Pretty interesting to me that what everyone is saying now seems to be long live the data center because everyone wants a piece of your premises. AWS and Microsoft with Outposts and Azure Stack are trying hard to keep your compute budget coming their way. Eh, 
Well, if you're investing in your on-premises data center, you might be upgrading your storage to NVMe over time. So up next, we chat with Howard Marks about how to choose a fabric for NVMe, as several standards have been ratified. We have a new guest, uh, Howard Marks, to chat with us about NVMe over fabric and and how to choose a, a fabric in the NVMe world. So, Howard, in a sentence or two, would you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. I'm Howard Marks. I'm chief scientist at Deep Storage LLC, where I do analysis and testing for storage vendors and spent about 35 years as a consultant actually making stuff work. And you have done a series for Tech Target on NVMe over fabric, introducing the topic and then getting into far more than an introduction going kind of deep. And it was some of that reading that prompted me to ping you and uh, say, hey, let's have a chat about NVMe over fabric and maybe how to choose a fabric type, as I think that's something more and more folks are going to be facing. Uh, so first of all, what do we mean by NVMe over fabric, specifically the, the the fabric bit? Define that part of things for us. Okay. So NVMe is a protocol you use to talk to an SSD, just like SCSI is the protocol you use to talk to a hard drive or an SSD or a tape drive. NVMe over fabrics is the remote version of that. Think of it as replacing fiber channel and iSCSI, both of which embed SCSI in a fabric protocol to transport across the network. So, so again, the, the the remote word is is key here, and that's what the fa- where the fabric comes in. We're interconnecting storage with some remote destination that is going to be moving data. Yep. Okay. Because locally, NVMe runs over PCIe, and you just don't have enough slots. Got it. So then, now we've got the. Uh, a whole bunch of different standards have come out for NVMe OF. Well, the smart thing the NVMe committee did was make NVMe over fabrics modular so that it was easy to change the transport protocol. iSCSI was a big job after they did Fiber Channel because the line between transport and content was blurry. In NVMe, it's clear. And that transport can be Fiber Channel. It can be Ethernet with or without our DMA, without our DMA, it would be Ethernet over and TCP. So basically, oh, and it can run over InfiniBand, which is a rare thing. Okay. Well, you just kind of given us the the 10,000-foot view of the different types of um, fabrics that are there, which, as you're saying, since this architecturally is modular, it makes it easy to add new fabric transports if NVMe requires them. Right. Well, the TCP standard just came out last month. So that's actively going on. In terms of, you know, what purpose are are people going to put these to or what are these fabrics good for? In the short term, in the corporate world, we're going to see people running NVMe over fiber channel because for two reasons. First of all, because they're familiar with fiber channel and the fiber channel network is owned by the storage guys, not the network guys. You and I have gotten along fine for all the years we've known each other, but network (laughs) guys and storage guys, there's usually a little bit of conflict. And so the storage guys want to keep keep everything on their network and Fiber Channel does that. And by converting from SCSI over Fiber Channel to NVMe over Fiber Channel, customers will get lower latency and greater parallelism, which means less queue exhaustion problems while accessing a storage array that is traditionally a storage array that is 
you know, some set of controllers and media and services in software all in one box. So, so you think NVMe OF over fiber channel is going to be the dominant fabric deployment for NVMe that we see out there? Short term in the corporate world. Again, because there is the, those fiber channel networks exist and it helps with that, well, the organizational hierarchy, right? The uh, Right. It's a less heavy lift. And in the corporate world, the applications those guys run rely on the data services that the array provides. So they're going to be connecting to an array. Sure. Outside the corporate world and in the longer term, as we get into the corporate world, Ethernet's going to be more significant because we're not just going to be connecting hosts to arrays, but we're going to be connecting smaller pieces. We're going to make the data center composable. So today, there are half a dozen vendors that are taking Ethernet NVMe over fabrics in one of its flavors and reducing it to a chip. So that you can build a JBOF, just a bunch of flash, with two of these chips and a couple PLX, PCIe switches, and 24 SSDs. Which is a cheap way to go about things as opposed to some sort of a general purpose x86-based server. Right. Or, well, actually two x86-based servers. Because I have two of these chips so one can fail or the Ethernet going to one of them can fail. So not only is this cheaper than using an x86 server, it's resilient. And then I can have the applications that do resiliency at an application level, MongoDB, Cassandra, the rest of the NoSQL guys, Hadoop, they can consume this flash directly from those JBOFs, where today they're either using an array, which is expensive because the array provides a lot of services, or they're using local SSDs in each node in the cluster, which is expensive because those SSDs have to be oversized and dedicated to purpose, and I have to buy a lot of them. And now the whole cluster is stuck running Hadoop because it's got all the Hadoop data in those servers. If we have the JBOF and we're running NVMe over Fabrics over RDMA, whether it's Rocky or iWarp, then latency to access that SSD is on the order of 125 microseconds. And accessing a local SSD is on the order of 70 or 80 microseconds. A penalty, but not that big of a penalty at all. Right. So the, the penalty is so small that externalizing the storage won't have a big impact on application performance, but it has a huge impact on flexibility because I can use those servers to run Hadoop to do analytics at night and something else during the day by just connecting them to different sets of flash. And then the composable aspect of things makes that viable. Right. And then we take the function that's currently being provided by the array and we run it as software, which people do now. A lot of arrays are software-based, you know, but think of software like vSAN or Nutanix, where the SSDs aren't internal to the server, but they're in this external JBOF. So when I take a server offline to do maintenance, I don't have to start rebuilding the data. I just have to attach the flash in the JBOF that server was managing to another server temporarily. Okay, let's talk about architecture uh, for a bit. You mentioned 
that initially um, it's going to be easy to deploy NVMe over Fabric using Fiber Channel as the th- that's our, our easy first step here. But then we're going to transition over time into Ethernet methods. You mentioned the various RDMA transports, including Rocky and iWarp, and then the TCP NVMe over Fabric TCP standard that's just been ratified. So here's where it gets really interesting because politics raises its ugly head. So there's, there's a group of vendors supporting uh, Rocky, RDMA over converged Ethernet. And really, we're talking Rocky V2, which can run under non-converged Ethernet, but that's a whole can of worms we don't want to get too deeply into yet. So there's a Rocky camp, and that's you know Mellanox and most of the people who are building targets. There's an iWarp camp, which is Intel and Chelsea and Microsoft. And then there's the TCP camp. Rocky is essentially RDMA over TCP, and it's all done in an offload on the NIC, which today means you either need to buy a Chelsea NIC or the absolutely very latest Intel motherboard 10 gig, which also supports iWarp. Do I really need the offload at this point in the x86 world? So there's two questions there. Do I need the offload because it reduces latency? And do I need the offload because it reduces CPU utilization? Do I need the offload because it reduces latency? You remember I said with Rocky, we're talking about on the order of 125 microseconds. With TCP, we're talking about on the order of 160 or 170 microseconds. The penalty becomes more severe. The penalty becomes more severe, but still low. Mm -hmm. But the advantage of TCP is I don't have to pick the NICs that have the offload. I don't have to do any configuration on my Ethernet switches. It's just TCP. It will get carried. Now, if I get fancy and I implement DCB and I say that my NVMe is higher priority and we run PFC, it might run a little bit smoother but it's not required and it's going to have a very small impact. Yeah, smoother as in you just talking about you know, making sure that those storage Ethernet frames are delivered in a timely fashion, they're prioritized. This would matter in a converged fabric where you're sharing the wire with all sorts of other data. Right. And customers should think and, and look at the experience with iSCSI. 10 years ago, iSCSI was new, and you kept reading articles that said that you have to have a TOW or an iSCSI HBA because the CPU consumption of iSCSI is so high that, you know, nothing will work without it. You'll get lousy performance. And that was true for about six months. And then Intel came out with quad-core processors instead of dual-core processors. And the fact that I was using a quarter of a core to run iSCSI became irrelevant. So from a... HPC, I want to maximize my performance and minimize my latency, and every microsecond counts. I want to go rocky, and that means, and I want to go rocky with DCB and all the switch settings. For the vast majority of what happens in the data center, TCP is going to be fine. And just like iSCSI over 10 gig provides plenty good performance for storage applications today, it will be plenty good for all but the edge cases. So then if we start with fiber channel, we'll end up with the, I guess I would call them niche cases that need some flavor of RDMA. 
And would we move then to a whole bunch of people are going to just be using plain old TCP and it's going to be good enough? Yes. I don't think there's a, and one of these three choices, and I'm leaving the RDMAs lumped together. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be, there are these three choices and one of them has 70% market share and the others fight over the what's left. I think that the fiber channel market will be around for a while. It's going to take off first because it's the least effort and the biggest market in the in terms of addressable market in the corporate world. I think TCP is going to take off in the hyperscalers because they need the range within their very large data centers that RDMA becomes really hard when you're talking about, yeah, go 40 rows down there over 12 switch hops and, and make sure the DCB works all right. You know, if your data center needs bicycles to get from one end to the other, then TCP is a much better idea. And, and over time, TCP will move into other application spaces. And as we get composable, we'll see that too. The other thing that, that NVMe over Fabrics does is it replaces SAS for the array to JBOF connection. And there I expect that it'll be RDMA 100 gig Ethernet because it's entirely controlled. There's actually no switch. It's a direct connect. I got a couple couple more questions for you, Howard. One, in all of this context, we've been talking about the storage traffic going across this network fabric. Ethernet has been the, the latest part of our conversation here. Do I have to have a lossless fabric? You, you've kind of implied that I don't because you've said plain old TCP without DCB and PFC is going to be good enough. If I'm not running those things, I'm probably not guaranteeing losslessness. Does that matter? The truth is none of none of the Ethernet solutions require losslessness. So iWarp runs over TCP and so can handle packet loss. Rocky V2 runs with just ECN and can handle packet loss. Right. Explicit congestion notification as in he's not going to send anything uh, if he knows that there's upstream congestion. Right. And RDMA, uh, our Rocky runs over UDP. And so it just has its own retry mechanism built in. It's uh, the TCP retry mechanism. So the issue isn't losslessness as much as, hey, if it's TCP, it's going to get retransmitted. We may end up with an occasional latency problem if there's congestion across the network fabric, but not something's going to blow up and it's going to get really ugly if a frame doesn't arrive in a timely fashion. Yes. And, and if we're talking about row scale, where there's a leaf switch a spine switch and a leaf switch, and they're all non-blocking losses because of congestion should be very rare. I mean, 10 to the minus eighth rare. And when you start talking about data center scale, getting losses that low is impractical and therefore you want to run TCP. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. One last question I got for you, Howard, let's pretend that you are consulting for me. We're deploying a, a greenfield NVMe fabric. What questions would you need answered about my data environment to know which fabric to recommend to me? Well, mostly it's the applications you intend to run. If you just want to make your Oracle run faster, then then you want an array um, because you don't want to change all your workflows to moving resiliency from the array to someplace else. And because if it's literally Oracle, that array is probably synchronously replicating 
across the river to Jersey City for protection anyway. If you are more adventurous with your applications, then you can get more adventurous with your infrastructure. While you wouldn't want excessive loss, it's good to know that for most applications, you don't have to have a completely lossless storage fabric. Um, Yes, of course, you would run into storage performance issues. That would result in long application transaction times if you were dropping a lot of packets. But for the most part, NVMe over fabric is going to run across a well-designed Ethernet network just fine. A little loss here and there is acceptable, which means to me that you can keep network switch configuration simple. Up next, I am going to chat with the lovable Datanauts co-host Chris Wall about Parallel NFS. And this goes back to a passing comment he made in show 153 on metadata. I brought up how Parallel NFS splits the data and the metadata channels and Chris reacted negatively. And we're going to discuss why he had a bad vibe about Parallel NFS. As we continue part three of the Data Knots show today, I wanted to talk to Mr. Wall about Parallel NFS because we did the show earlier and he was a little bit grumpy about it. So, Chris, in a nutshell, man, what is Parallel NFS and why does it matter? I don't know if I like the descriptor of grumpy, but I suppose <laughs> we can we can dive into this. So NFS, the network file system, it's a protocol where essentially we we map requests to files that are held on a server that has some type of storage device on the back end. 4.0 was a set of standards that were ratified many, many years ago. Uh, And then 4.1 came out, which is minor version 1, which basically has a bunch of amendments that enhance NFS 4.0 into 4.1. If you're familiar with semantic versioning, it follows that same kind of type of schema. And within 4.1, there is a specification for parallelization of data access to file systems. Think of it as similar to striping files or objects and blocks, but in this case, we're mostly focusing on files across multiple different storage servers instead of having them all held within one, you know, one metadata server that has the gateway into it, like your traditional storage arrays. Yeah, I understood that it, it, you're getting the mated metadata element out of the path. It's not, no longer going to be a bottleneck for you, so you get to access in a faster way. Yeah, yeah, it's really... it's disaggregating the roles of metadata from data. So I guess kind of walking through it, let's say you're you're a client, woo, you're having enjoying life and you need a file and you're talking to a metadata server that you're aware can answer in NFS 4.1 protocol format specifically for parallelized NFS. Uh, so you as the client, you're going to request a file from the server very similarly that you, in the way that you would with a normal 4.1 request, except that you're asking for something a little bit different. You're asking that metadata server for a layout. And a layout is kind of like a treasure map. It's used to describe the location and the protocols required to get access to the files that you're looking for. Because the file may be, it may be that the file is split across multiple locations if it's a really big file, or it might just be that you're looking for a lot of files and they're all in different locations or the partition or the volume are different locations. So it's almost like a directory service sort of a lookup. Hey, metadata server, I need to know where to get this file. Where can I get it? You can get it here, wherever he in here could be one location or a distributed location. Exactly. And it, there's literally uh, some of the extensions to 4.1 to support PNFS are things like get layout uh, or get me a list of your layouts and then I'll go grab that layout, kind of check it out, ask the metadata server, hey, I need this information, I'm checking out this layout. 
And then the metadata server goes and talks to the storage devices using some sort of control protocol, which is not actually determined in the standard. You get to, you get to pick your own protocol. It's, it's, it's a lovely world of choice. And you, as the metadata server, then tell the storage devices, hey, I need this stuff. This particular layout is being checked out by this client. Go talk to that client and establish your, establish your connection using whatever storage protocols you prefer. And that's how it all works. You know, it's kind of like you, the client, talk to the metadata server. The metadata server talks to the storage devices, one or multiple. And then the storage devices ultimately end up talking to you, the client. Okay. So the, and, and the context of the original conversation we were talking about this, we were talking about a company called Hammerspace that relies heavily on PNFS to do what it does and to get some of the performance and scale that they do out of their operations. And okay, now we were talking about that and you had said, ooh, bad vibes about PNFS. I don't know what I think about that. <laughs> there were some problems and some concerns that you had. And okay, maybe grumpy was too strong of a word, but you did have your reservations. And, and, and I guess that's context specific for you. So maybe for Hammerspace, it's fine. But in your experience, there were some other places that PNFS is used in the wild that uh, didn't make you so happy. So let's talk through those. Yeah. And, and just to kind of rewind a little bit, the goals are admirable. I, I never really hate technology. I just don't really like the way it's used sometimes. And having a goal of better file access performance because you can access multiple storage devices and removing the server from the data path, I don't have a problem with that uh, because you might want to stripe files or blocks across multiple devices. And in fact, that's quite opportunistic. That's why we have distributed file systems and distributed storage systems and object storage systems. That's why these things exist. My challenge with PNFS really ran over the course of many years of dealing with NFS as a protocol for virtualized environments. Um, so it could be just straight up operating systems trying to access PNFS or hypervisors trying to access PNFS. And the problem was, A, I, I think the first problem was this. Uh, a, people confuse PNFS, which is parallel NFS, with session trunking. Those are not the same thing. And so people would often want to sprinkle this magic dust of PNFS on their VMware or their Microsoft environment in order to increase throughput, because one of the caveats of dealing with NFS is you as a client can only establish one session to the target. Uh, it's not like MPIO or multipath IO with SCSI or Fiber Channel. I'm sorry, iSCSI or Fiber Channel, where you can just create multiple sessions and kind of trunk across them. Historically, you can't do that with NFS. Session trunking is a technology that lets you create multiple paths to a NAS array. And that's awesome because it turns NFS into this multi-streamed, you know, sexy throughput monster. Parallel NFS, in contrast, again, if you look at a lot of the vendors and what they're doing outside of the, the one that you mentioned earlier... My experience was with folks like Red Hat and NetApp, where you'd have an environment that was set up running virtual machines, which are just files on a file server somewhere or blocks, uh, you know, on a block storage somewhere, and trying to set up PNFS. And, and frankly, the vSphere versions at the time and the Hyper-V versions at the time didn't support it. It really wasn't going to solve the problem in this case. It's not like you have the files kind of sprayed across multiple environments. You're just trying to increase throughput. And I always felt like session trunking or just going iSCSI if you totally love Ethernet and hate you know, Fiber Channel were better alternatives than trying to introduce this hodgepodge of early kind of curmudgeon PNFS world into the environment. Well, I mean, we're talking about some history here. We're going back a few years. Do you, do you still feel that parallel NFS is a unicorn or that rare? Or now that we're, we're actually in 2019 that we're recording this, 
Has it matured to the point that it's, I mean, it's in the Linux kernel, man. So it does seem like there's some general adoption there. I mean, lots of things are in the Linux kernel, to be fair. So I would <laughs> use that as an argument. Let's, let's also pay homage to the fact that this standard was introduced around 2010. So even in 2015, when I really got on my soapbox, it was a five-year-old standard, or at least an R, the RFCs were written around that time frame. By the way, if you're playing the at-home RFC game, it's 5661 and 5664 are the ones you want to read. And I actually find them kind of interesting because I'm weird. Moving forward, though, for those environments that I mentioned, the virtualized ones, at least from a VMware perspective, they went forward with the virtual volumes architecture, which is a way to reduce the IO blender problem, where you've got all these blocks coming in that the storage frame doesn't really understand who's the responsible, you know, who's responsible for these IO requests outside of the host itself. And so virtual volumes allowed you to kind of literally create virtual container volumes, if you will to where each one maps directly to the files necessary to run a virtual machine. It definitely, in my mind, was a bit more elegant in a solution. And it's where I see that particular piece of the industry kind of going. If you want to do something of this nature, where you're kind of solving the IO problem, it definitely has some advantages and some disadvantages. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of similar in that even with virtual volumes, you have a, you know, we'll put my air quotes, metadata server, that is the API endpoint and helps you understand what capabilities are available for the underlying storage. And you have to talk to that from an API perspective in order to set everything up. And similar here, you have a metadata server with PNFS. But I don't know, from, from that world, that virtualized world, I don't feel like this is really the way forward. However, if you're setting up storage using NFS, I've long been a fan of what like Coho Data did back with their fun little, uh, you know, flash-based NFS appliances. NetApp has always been a kingpin in the file-based world. I don't think there's anything wrong with using that as technology, but it was seen as this magic hammer and everything was a nail from a virtual machine perspective, and Mm. and I just don't agree with that. Mm. Well, how well-defined is Parallel NFS from your viewpoint? In other words, NFS 4.1 is a a broad standard with a lot of things in it. Parallel NFS is one of them. I mean, is it... do, Do we have some industry adoption challenges because it's kind of open to interpretation how you would do parallel NFS? Well, it's kind of the double-edged sword, right? If you, if you specify how someone should do something, then you're also kind of limiting the architect's choice. And so in a similar kind of vein to that, the RFCs don't tell anyone how this all works. There's, there's definitely definitions as to what commands you have to support from a 4.1 perspective for PNFS. Uh, but b- beyond the commands that have to be supported from the client to the metadata server, everything else is really up in the air. Uh, so how the metadata server talks to the storage devices, what protocols are used, what storage protocols are used from the storage device to the client, every bit of that is going to be vendor magic sauce because they get to choose all of those pieces and parts. Ultimately, you're just asking for layouts and the rest of it's kind of up to <laughs> up to the architect to design or the, the technical vendor to design. And I think that might have caused maybe some, I don't know, some challenges in that arena because you can't just work on the on the efforts of someone else. You're having to adopt this architecture, really. It's kind of like a reference architecture for storage uh, PNFS in the 4.1 spec that tells you sort of how it should all operate, and then you have to put in the stick time to make it work. Couple that with relatively low adoption. At least I, I've really never, I've never seen this in the wild. I've never encountered someone that's like, yeah, we have a PNFS system set up with our, you know, our main data center. Uh, at least at the level that I'm working at with virtualized environments and applications and whatnot. 
Uh, so it's either there under the covers and I just don't even know about it, which great, or or no one's really <laughs> been adopting it all that much at the more, you know, the more hypervisor and application layer, which, you know, I, I kind of feel like that's the truth because I feel like there's a lot of more elegant and more abstracted solutions available outside of PNFS with object storage and things of that nature. It goes back to there's more than one way to do this and the the, the right way goes back to it depends, I suppose. Yeah, you know me. I, I hate complexity and the idea <laughs> of setting up all of this stuff. And to be fair, the metadata server doesn't have to be an individual separate server. It could just be a service or a daemon running within the storage controller that's handling this. And it's a similar kind of story for virtual volumes with, with VMware as an example. Uh, but just having this extra piece that's going and get you something. I, I feel like if you have a use case that's really driving the need for that kind of performance or striping files in that kind of way, I feel like we've already kind of solved that. Google and other folks have solved it and open sourced it. Now there's a lot of products that can do that. Maybe the where I'm missing the light is that this is so much raw, sexy performance that I've just not got on, on board the bus yet. Hmm. Why can't we all just get along? There's so many solutions, and, and that's uh, you know that's been a theme of data knots, Chris. It, so many of the different problems and solutions that we've talked about are attacking the same problem in different ways. A lot of times, there's personal interests in why people started their uh, project. If we look at something as big as the different public clouds that are out there. Man, they're solving the same problem in, in in very similar ways, and it's up to you as the end consumer to decide what makes the best sense from your performance requirements, from your uh, uptime requirements, from how much money you're willing to spend, and then put the solution together. There's not always one right way, and there might be three or five or more different ways that you can solve a particular problem with the technology that's out there, which makes this fun if you're a technologist, but also frustrating. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll pay a compliment. I, I have been following the space reasonably well ever since getting up my soapbox years ago. And I'll say, if you're, if you're looking for a very file-friendly protocol, there are vendors that have support for that. The, the specification does support object and block, but I'm just not really seeing a lot of appetite around that. But if your use case is more file-based, especially if you have unstructured files, I think this would be something to at least look at and see if it's supported and can be adopted relatively easily for your environment. Okay. Well, Mr. Wall, it's 2019, so let's refresh everybody's minds. Uh, where can they follow you? Sure. Uh, on Twitter, at Chris Wall, and my website is wallnetwork.com. Excellent. And that is going to do it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. You can reach me at EC Banks on Twitter or via my about page at ethancbanks.com. And for more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, visit packetpushers.net. All the good stuff is there. Cloud, security, storage, compute, hyperconverged automation. You get the idea. Need even more from the Packet Pushers Podcast Network? Try Full Stack Journey with Scott Lowe or IPv6 Buzz with Scott Hogue, Tom Caffeine, and Ed Horley. We've got even more shows than that, all aimed at your professional career development. Just search for Packet Pushers anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify. And until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindle spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. 